I'm Marianne Kolbesek McGee, Managing Editor of Healthcare Info Security. Health information exchanges are networks that allow patient data to be shared among many different and often competing healthcare organizations in a region or state. The aim of this data sharing is better coordinated care, elimination of redundant tests, fewer medication errors, and reduced costs. But sharing patient data also brings challenges to protecting data privacy and security. Today we're talking to Dev Culber, Executive Director and CEO of Health InfoNet, the statewide health information exchange in Maine. Dev will explain how Health InfoNet's data architecture model and best practices help protect the privacy and data of patients' health data in that state. Hi, Dev. Hey, how are you doing, man? Good. Could you tell us a little bit about your organization and your role? Health InfoNet is a Maine not-for-profit organization. It was formed in January of 2006. Uh, it is a uh, stakeholder organization in that its uh, community board of directors includes representatives from the consumer community, provider community, payer community, business, and state government. And to that end, uh, that board of 19 has been instrumental in helping to position uh, the organization for its primary mission today, which you described in your intro, basically, in terms of supporting coordination of care uh, and helping to begin to look at ways to improve safety, reduce cost, and hopefully create a better outcome for patients who are being served by it. Today, the exchange um, has 25 of Maine's 39 hospitals connected and exchanging data bidirectionally. Uh, we also have an additional uh, nine hospitals under contract. That means they're in the process of connecting right now. That leaves essentially three hospitals that are still not under contract. High anticipation is that all hospitals in Maine will be under contract and fully connected by the end of 2013. Additionally, we're also connecting physicians' practices, and we have just over 200 practices connected today for bidirectional exchange and have a 1,000 primary care physicians under contract for connection through the Regional Extension Center grant program out of the Office of the National Coordinator. So today we have approximately a million lives with some data in the system. Obviously, it depends a little bit on where people have gone. That um, That's about 78% uh, of all the residents in the state of Maine. Tell us a little bit about the uh, data architecture model that you sure. use to exchange data. We are a central data repository model. What that means is back in 2005, uh, the provider community that came together to uh, define this uh, operation made two very fundamental decisions. One was that they agreed they wanted to have their clinical data integrated into a single data set. And the second was that they agreed to uh, stop competing on patient data. Both of those are fundamental to building the initial trust model that is in place today. Uh, the, the decision to go with the central data repository model had perhaps more to do with some understandings about the advantages of having an integrated data set than specifically about security. Uh, although I think that we've uh, we've accomplished some things in the realm of security that probably reinforce why it was a good decision, and I'll come back to those in a second. Primarily, um, from some other experiences in Maine involving an all-payer claims database uh, and a few other statewide efforts, it was clear that we were going to get some additional advantages out of being able to standardize the data set 
and being able to start using the clinical data to help support not only just the transition of information from one point to another, but also, quite frankly, the ability to start looking at things like clinical rules uh, and, and uh, real-time alert structures. So having it as a centralized data repository was critical to be able to accomplish those objectives. We also have a mission specific to serving uh, public health, uh, and quite frankly, again, the very, very challenging objective if you can't standardize data uh, and uh, to be able to communicate to public health. Uh, and so that was a, a fundamental part of the original design. From a security spec perspective, I think the reason we felt and the consumer groups around us felt that the self-data repository model was a, a, a reasonable strategy uh, was that in building the architecture, um, we have been able to uh, physically separate the clinical data itself from the person identifier data. So they actually live in two separate data structures. Um, and then both of those data structures are encrypted at rest. Um, and they are they are only brought back together on demand, um, and demand in this case means a user accessing the the portal to uh, to call for a patient uh, using web service calls. So for for a someone to hack that structure, I think is is fairly significant and challenge. Not only would you have to hack through the encryption on both of the uh, data sets, but then you'd also have to figure out how to put back uh, together the uh, uh, web service calls. Uh, to make the actual data come together so it was identifiable. So I think I think we've we've entertained a reasonable strategy. One of the reasons that we felt that uh, beyond all the ones I've mentioned that we felt that the central data repository model was perhaps a bit safer than the alternative, which is a federated model where the data lives at home with the individual providers and then gets called based on a record locator structure, uh, is that in the federated model your your security is only as good as the weakest point in the in the uh, organizations, the provider organizations that are participating as far as um, going out to and finding data, whereas in the central data repository model, you're, you're able to uh, institute some important perimeter and penetration management tools uh, that further improve the probability somebody's going to hack you. Um, and so I think those are the core reasons from a security perspective why we've uh, gone down the architecture we've gone down. Are there any special precautions that you needed to take because you have a centralized uh, model versus if you would have gone with you know any of the other models, federated or hybrid? Well, um, I mean, I think sure. I mean, I think that the, the not only do you do you pay attention to your uh, to your perimeter and to your penetration questions, but I think you actually try to have a, a fairly consistent. Uh, schedule of uh, attempting to break the system. So, for example, uh, we pay a third party to attack us uh, twice a year. Uh, we don't know when that's coming. We have no idea how they're going to attack us, uh, what their various methods are going to be, um, and uh, that's a very important additional step, I believe, in, in, in maintaining the credibility around the central data repository model. You'd probably want to do that even if you were working inside of a federated model, but I think it becomes more important only because the concepts of the data being centralized are, are potentially, at least perceptibly, uh, perceived to be more at risk. I don't believe that to be the case, by the way, but I, I do think you have to take some extra precautions, in, in, including things like um, fairly regular penetration uh, testing. Health InfoNet is also one of the first health information exchanges in the country to enable medical image sharing. Are there any extra steps you needed to take or any other technologies that you need to implement to protect image-related data? Well, it's interesting because I don't think the data itself defines the strategies. 
mean, the, data, the data is just one more uh, element. Uh, I think the strategy for what we're doing in the image repository adds some additional challenges. Um, this will be the this was a, this is a statewide image repository. It will serve primarily as the archive structure, but it also will serve as the point of reference uh, for providers who are looking uh, to have um, access to important prior uh, testings. Um, and to that end, the architecture is different than the exchange. Uh, it is, in fact, going to be based on a cloud architecture. Um, and I think inherent in the cloud architecture are some additional demands for security, again, around the, the protection and identification of, of uh, source and use becomes, I think, a, a significantly larger challenge. And quite frankly, uh, the opportunity is, uh, that we're taking on right now is a, as a proof of concept uh, for the next six months, one of the tests of that proof of concept before we move forward into a full-fledged utilization will be to validate the additional security that uh, our, our vendor will bring to the table, in this case it's Dell, will bring to the table to sustain a level of, of viability in a cloud-based architecture. Again, not we're not a cloud-based architecture per se at, at, at the exchange ourselves, but we will now introduce that into the structure for the support of images, and it's really the only reasonable way, quite frankly, to develop a, an image repository of the size and, and scope we're talking about. Can you describe a little about your approach in obtaining patient consent for exchanging oh, the information? Sure. Our consent model in Maine is is an opt-out consent model. That was established through a interesting process with a consumer advisory structure, which is actually a codified part of our bylaws. In our bylaws, we have two standing committees to the board. One is a consumer advisory committee. Uh, that committee is constituted uh, by people who represent both advocacy functions like the Civil Liberties Union, Planned Parenthood, uh, and also folks who are there just because they're consumers. And in 2007 and 2008, we spent an extended period debating opt-in, opt-out, and Quite frankly, what we were doing, because it's really based on treatment, uh, the question of whether you needed to have patient involvement at all, because uh, the uh, the exchange and what it's functioning and how it's contracted to the providers uh, really is working under HIPAA and treatment, and exchange for treatment. So there was a debate even, do you even need to have the consumer uh, state of preference? My board from 2006 on was committed to having consumers engaged directly in the in the uh, both the design of the exchange, but also quite frankly uh, participating in the decision about whether they wanted to participate or not. So, after a great deal of discussion, um, we we agreed on an opt out strategy. Uh, interestingly, the opt out strategy in 2007 came with a hook, and that is. Uh, the Civil Liberties Union was very unhappy about an opt-out, but agreed to have it go into a demonstration uh, project with one important understanding, and that was uh, Health InfoNet would remove the clinical data from the, from the exchange in its entirety if a person chose to opt-out. So basically, what we agreed to then said, if at least you would take the data out so it's, so it's no longer part of the data set, the clinical data, then they would be willing to go forward and have the exchange uh, demonstrate itself. Uh, and I think that was a wise move. Um, in, in essence, it, it allowed the exchange to move forward. We had some educational requirements and in terms of how to, how to get consumers to understand what was going on. And long story short, uh, basically addressed that problem, which all exchanges have, and that is if it's if it's an opt-in model, how do you get them to take action? 
how do you get them to declare themselves one way or another? That's really the, the foundation. Now, we've made it a little more complex. This last legislative cycle ending in June of 2011, the legislature decided to change a state law involving HIV test data and, um, and data generated by licensed mental health providers. Prior to that, the consent laws were such that the patient had to give written consent and specifically identify who the information was being released to uh, in order for those two groups to be able to provide content, which obviously ruled out using an exchange. And so now the licensed providers for, me for mental health and folks generating HIV results can release that information. It's not everything. It's a defined data set. But can release that information to the exchange. The exchange must take the data in and sequester it and not make it available or visible until such time as the patient specifically opts in for uh, allowing that content to be viewed. So now we've got an opt-out for general medical information and an opt-in for uh, mental health and HIV test results. So it will be, and it is, we're working on this right now to stand it up, a little more confusing and a little more challenging technically, but I think it's a, it's a compromise that's fair. It allows some uh, granular consent, it sounds like. Exactly, exactly. And that's one of the things up till now we are a fairly blunt instrument. You're either in or you're out. And in this case, we were, we were actually increasingly hearing from both of those communities, both the mental health community and the HIV community. They were feeling discriminated against because they had members who wanted their information in, but because of the law, they couldn't include it. What approach are you taking when it comes to authenticating the identity of organizations or individuals that are using the exchange? The way our exchange is defined, interestingly enough, Health InfoNet does not take ownership of the data. So the responsibility of the ownership continues to reside with the originating provider. And with that then comes the uh, responsibility for who they authorize and what role they declare uh, for those accessing the exchange. So there is a formal process for every organization, whether it's a practice or a hospital, that goes under contract with the exchange where an individual is the source authorizing specific people by role. And we have, at this point in time, I think seven roles. And each role defines a slightly different view of what you can see. And that is a formal process where a written authorization comes forward to the exchange from that organization. We go ahead and, and identify that person against the, the identified role and provide the uh, credentials on a temporary basis for them to become part of the structure and sign and establish their permanent uh, credentials within the structure. What that means, though, and this is really the important part, is that every organization that is under contract is going at risk with the other organization organizations in terms of the behavior of their employees. And that's a very powerful structure. It's been a, uh, an interesting experience getting security officers comfortable with that concept. But in the end, because the security officers have complete access to all of the auditing data uh, inside the exchange, so they can, they can very quickly look at usage based on either a patient or any user in the exchange. Um, and, and make that an extension of their own internal auditing strategies. Um, we've gained quite a bit of comfort with, with the concept that uh, people are able to, to identify behaviors and find patterns that will reinforce uh, behaviors that are positive. So we do, we do run an active audit program even within the exchange, 
And so, you know, just recently I identified, uh, since I'm the security officer too for the organization, I identified some patterns of behavior with a with a physician user that looked inappropriate. Uh, involved her looking at her mother's medical record on a repeated basis. Uh, and quite frankly, turned out that she was sanctioned for her behaviors because while she was had the right intent, she really was not the physician of record caring for her mother. Uh, and so that's the kind of thing which we pay a great deal of attention to. But at the end of the day, uh, because everybody is responsible for the people they've authorized to be in, it actually is it, it takes the uh, control and management structure right back into the organization that's providing the authorization to to access. What advice would you give to any startup health information exchanges out there in terms of best practices for data security and privacy when planning their strategies? I think there's some I think there's some core things to consider. I've dwelt on this a bit already in this, in this conversation, but there's really not enough energy and time can be placed in those first early steps in terms of starting to build the trust model. And I mean that both in terms of the provider communities that are engaged uh, as well as the consumer community. Um, spending the time to work through and get to consensus, you may not be unanimous by the way, but get to consensus on how the exchange will operate and what the rules of engagement are, I think is critical. Uh, so, for example, one of the things we've not talked about is in the early planning phases, the consumer group brought forward its uh, sort of its, if we could have everything, this is what we want list. And clearly one of the key things that we still have not delivered on but are trying to get to this year uh, is providing direct access by the consumer to their information in the exchange. Uh, that's, that's a fundamental building block of getting that trust network to work. In addition, what we do do today is we provide any consumer who wishes the ability to call for an audit of who's been in their record in the exchange. And that is both just good in terms of building trust, but also, quite frankly, it's a, it's a wonderful enforcement uh, standard for keeping people hopefully doing the right things as users. So that would be a fundamental building block. The second thing, I think, is to step back and take a look at what you're trying to do with the data. Uh, you know, in our case, the, the vision was larger than just moving it from point A to point B. And so with that comes some additional requirements to stop and think a little bit about your, your security structures. You need to stop and develop a, a fairly robust set of policies around uh, how you manage it, how you access it, how you authorize and audit what gets done. Those things need to be uh, basically well laid out and, and quite frankly, vetted, uh, regardless of whether you're a, a central data repository model or a federated model. And then I think the, the real key um, beyond that is I think exchanges need to live at a level of privacy and security performance that is above the sort of general community practice in healthcare. Because either in, in perception or fact, we're doing things that make people uncomfortable. Um, and therefore, you need to be able to speak to a slightly higher uh, standard of practice. That's why we've chosen the, the, the architecture we've chosen, because it permits us to be able to both uh, encrypt data in motion uh, and encrypt data at rest, which I think is a fundamental expectation of, of, of 
any any organization exchanger or provider, but quite frankly has to be, I think, a core standard of practice for, for a true standing as an exchange. You really do need to be able to speak to that expectation of encryption both at rest and in motion for the, for the data sets. And again, that's, a, that's an evolving area and, and, and quite frankly challenging because the price for being encrypted at rest, of course, is that it slows down the process. Um, and you've got to work to balance those two because, again, I, I do think exchanges need to be living at a standard that's slightly above the community standard. Thank you very much, Dev. Great insights. I'm Marian Kolbesak-McGee for Healthcare Info Security. Thanks for listening.